We are back with On Second Thought from GBB. I'm Virginia Prescott. If you live in Georgia, you don't see sheets of polar ice dropping into the ocean, except on YouTube. Other effects of a warming planet and ocean acidification are visible. Cypress groves and wetland trees turning ghostly gray. Pecan orchards shredded by intense storms. Shifting coastlines and shrunken streams in some places. Flooded fields in others. Animals and plants once common, no longer there. A record heat wave in Atlanta in May. While loud debates over the causes of climate change dominate national policy, some municipal leaders are leaping over ideology and making plans for the future. Today, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms is headed to D.C. to testify in front of a Senate committee about Atlanta's plans for climate change. But Rick Van Noy found that some Republican leaders in the South are also taking actions to mitigate local efforts while the federal government continues to roll back protections. Rick Van Noy met with several for his new book, Sudden Spring, Stories of Adaptation in in a Climate Change South. And he's joining us now from Blacksburg, Virginia. Good morning, Rick. Good morning. Dr. Kim Cobb is with us also. She's a climate scientist at Georgia Tech and director of Global Change Program there. She also has worked with several municipalities on making climate change plans, and she joins me here in the studio. Kim, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. All right, so Southerners, certainly not strangers to heat, but there is a new report from the Union of Concerned Scientists about how, quote, unquote, killer heat is expected in the coming decades, with Atlanta experiencing levels of, quote, dangerous heat. Now, Rick, I'm going to start with you. What dangers come with higher temperatures, especially in urban centers? Um, Well, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, says that... um, you know, heat-related exposure is uh, causes more deaths than some of these other more obvious or uh, talked-about effects of climate change, like hurricanes and floods, etc. Um, the thing about heat is it also reduces um, productivity. Um, you know, we work slower, and um, I think that, according to one report, um, for every degree Fahrenheit of increase. Um, we lose something like 0.7% of GDP, you know, so there's a productivity loss. There's uh, more energy costs associated with uh, heat. And then, you know, and then when when there's a lot of heat, people work more slowly. I know I don't want to work uh, when it's too hot or at least outside. Um, and I think they've even found that heat has an effect on your uh, ability to perform complicated tasks. Um, like, uh, I don't know, higher function math and things like that. Well, we Um, also know that running AC in high gear hits your wallet, too. Kim, how do these rising temperatures impact people in different socioeconomic backgrounds? Well, that's really the issue here. Heat is not an equal opportunity killer. And so we really are looking at the very young and the very old, people with pre-existing health conditions, um, and especially across those groups, the lowest income members of our community are exceptionally vulnerable, often don't have access to adequate air conditioning to uh, maintain safe temperatures in their environments. And so uh, this is why... um, Uh, The mayor emphasized this in her testimony to Congress uh, in her statement, noting that Atlanta um, in some ways has these challenges uh, currently, and they'll be getting worse in the future, um, and the city's plans, uh, addressing those city plans to get in front of that.
Well, and Rick writes in his book about the Climate Impact Lab's assessment of how climate change affects GDP, GDP nationally, but regionally, which, Rick, by your read, the South is going to get hammered. Why the South in particular? Well, it's already, um, it's already hot. Um, it's low-lying in places. And um, as Dr. Cobb mentioned, it's already got, it's got places that are very poor and very vulnerable. Um, and those poor and vulnerable communities are um, going to be impacted and, and, and displaced um, in some cases. They may have a harder time relocating. They may not have transportation. They may not be, to be able to get out in, um, during a hurricane or during a heat event, um, as we talked about. Right. Um, so that's one reason. That, yeah. And not just extreme heat, but also precipitation, as you mentioned, uh, driving but rains, precipitation. increased precipitation. And not just in metro Atlanta, of course. We've seen how rising temperatures are impacting rural communities, including Georgia farmers. Now, we did speak with cotton farmer Mark Peel in Berrien County back at the start of June, who talked about what he's seeing. We are facing one of the, the toughest droughts I've seen in years. And uh, record heats, I don't think, I can't remember when we've ever had uh, so many consecutive days of 100-plus degree temperatures in the month of May. And, you know, we're just, uh, can't believe it. You know, we went from extreme rain, you know, following Hurricane Michael now to extreme drought. Farmers particularly attuned to environmental changes, of course. Kim, how much can we say that this is about climate change? Well, the models and the historical data are pretty clear that we are expecting more extreme precipitation events, especially across the southeast, and that that's going to be separated by periods of, of more prolonged and severe drought. And that may seem, uh, you know, counterintuitive, but the, the drought conditions are really uh, owing to the heating of soil layers and vegetation that is going to lead to uh, droughts in, in those agricultural communities. And then when that precipitation comes, it's going to come in, in more concentrated packets, which again represents acute threats for agricultural communities and urban centers alike. Well, are there less obvious costs to these kind of disasters, drought and extreme rain that we don't think of? Like, you know, food production, for example. Obviously, if the farmers aren't able to deliver it, what happens there? Well, definitely uh, issues of freshwater resources are already rearing their ugly heads all across the globe and, uh, of course, across the western United States in acute fashion. Um, here in the United, here in the southeastern U.S., we are blessed with fairly abundant precipitation, but, of course, we still have our water wars um, uh, raging on across several states here in the south. So, really, it's about embracing these core findings of climate science and using those to help policymakers across the state prepare for the coming challenges. And we have a, a large bank of experts here in the state to help with that in the form of the Georgia Climate Project, which is now a couple years old. Uh, Georgia Tech, Emory, and UGA banding together to try to bring those findings to the communities, to policymakers, to practitioners, and uh, help the state prepare for climate change and reduce those losses. Well, that's one of the things that you did, Rick, is you visited a lot of places where uh, that are on the front lines, low-lying areas, uh, barrier islands, and I also found that people across the southeast and the nation are making carbon neutral or clean energy pledges. So they're not concerned with the politics of it necessarily, but with the changes that they're actually seeing and how to mitigate them. So let's uh, look at one example. Mayor Bulterman, I hope I'm saying his name properly, from Tybee Island, Georgia. How is he taking action? 
Well, yeah, I think just about everybody, like the farmer that you um, spoke with, is seeing changes. And they're seeing changes in Tybee Island, Georgia. And um, one of the problems they have there is they have that causeway to get to the island. That's the only way to get on and off. Right, and Highway it 80. Floods more, Highway 80. It floods more and more um, each year. Um, so they've set about to uh, – they hired someone to create a pretty ambitious adaptation plan. And that involved a lot of different things, including um, protecting some of their dunes, um, better communication with people when a storm is about to come so that they can, you know, if they need to get off, they can get off. Um, but to address that that road problem, um, they're going to need, you know, they just can't do it themselves. Um, they're going to need federal help. And that's one of the problems is, is you know, there are sort of there are really good places in the southeast that are doing great things. Um, but we don't yet have a kind of coherent national strategy. Well, tell me a little bit more about protecting the dunes, because this is something that the mayor credits with actually saving them from um, fall storms that came in pretty hard. Yeah, I think they that was part of their plan was to cr- was to protect the dunes or also to create um, uh, places for people, little you know, spots for people to sort of be able to access the beach and walk through, but to definitely protect the, the dunes so that, yeah, in the case of a storm surge, um, they'd be okay. And I think it, uh, for the last storm, um, it worked. So what does the mayor say about the, you know, the politics and the ideology, the, the whole discussion of climate change has been pretty, pretty soundly divided between, you know, conservatives and liberals. Conservatives think, uh, well, I'm not going to say what they think. I'm just going to mm-hmm. keep with that generalization and say that, that on the federal policy level, the government is rolling back on protections. So what, how does ma- the mayor defend himself as a Republican mayor? Uh, I mean, I think that's one of the things. I mean, some of them don't like to get into the causality. I think the um, city manager in Tybee er, said something like, you know, we're not going to get into causality. We're not going to get into cow flatulence or something like that. So, And I think that's something you sometimes hear at the federal level is that, um, I don't know, climate change almost becomes like the butt of a joke or something like that. Um, and, you know, it's really not. Um, so they may not get into to the causality, but they're seeing the changes, and I think they want help. And um, I think a lot of the mayors see this as kind of a practical issue. Um, it's almost like just as they need to deal with uh, trash or sidewalks or other kinds of public works initiatives, um, you know, this is a kind of public works, public safety um, uh, threat. And so, so they're sort of practical and not ideological in how they're approaching climate change. Um, you know, the mayor is one. The mayor of the city of Charleston is another. Um, you know, I spoke to several that just saw this as a practical rather than ideological problem. Kim, what are you saying? Yeah, so I wanted to chime in here. I'm squirming in my seat because, you know, we have a fabulous new project down uh, based in Savannah in Chatham County called Smart Sea Level Sensors. And we've been so thrilled with the partnership at the county and the city level, in particular, uh, Mayor Eddie Deloach, who is also a Republican, um, who speaks quite frankly about the coming threats of rising seas. 
and they have coastal flooding issues in the here and now that they need to address and longer-term challenges to begin some important conversations about. People are pretty wide-eyed down there. When you can bring a set of tools into a community and say, we're going to help you get more information about threats right now, uh, coastal flooding that you see uh, increasing in frequency, blue sky flooding, um, these devastating hurricanes, these communities see the writing on the wall, and they're really eager to work with us. So we've been so grateful for that partnership that's very deep and long-lasting Georgia Tech working with those communities. That's Georgia Tech climate scientist Kim Cobb. Also with me, Rick Van Noy. He's the author of Sudden Spring. It's a book about how the South is dealing with the impacts of climate change. And we're talking about this on the day that Keisha Lance Bottoms, mayor of Atlanta, is in D.C. testifying on climate change. So why is she giving testimony on the Hill, Kim? Well, I think everybody uh, in Congress is is really keen to have a substantive discussion about climate change. And I say that from members across the aisle, actually. Um, I think that they're looking for cities for leadership right now, where there is a relative void at the federal level. Currently, cities are really stepping up to the challenge. Uh, There's over 100 cities in this country that have made, in the last several years, pledges to uh, go 100% renewable in the next decade or two, Atlanta being one of those. And that's only one of many kind of policies that she is highlighting on the Hill today, leading, uh, leading climate policy and providing blueprints that can inform a future comprehensive federal policy. But these kind of changes cost money, and politicians and leaders often have had to balance other expenditures, you know, transit, education, health services. How realistic are these infrastructure and clean energy proposals when a city has to balance a budget? Well, the fact of the matter is that, of course, uh, solar and wind and renewables are becoming competitive with uh, fossil fuel-based sources of energy. And the fact of the matter is climate change is a profound economic threat, especially we, as we've just discussed in this segment, to the southeastern United States, and particularly to cities like Atlanta, which have so many uh, vulnerable residents and with a transportation uh, network that is also crumbling under its own weight right now. So really, when you get out in front of the kind of infrastructure challenges, you are not just addressing climate change threat. You are improving public health. You are improving community well-being. You are improving efficiency. And so that's why this is such an attractive package that the city has put together and that the residents strongly support. Obviously, coastal cities have their own set of problems. Rick, you mentioned Charleston also went to Norfolk, Virginia. What are some of the major challenges coastal southern cities are facing right now? Well, they've all got um, yeah different kinds of sea level rise uh, scenarios. I think you know Norfolk is is also subsiding or sinking, and so they've seen about fourteen and a half inches of sea level rise. Um, now, of course, they're not also not they're not debating it, and neither is the Navy that's that's based there. Um, you know, they, it's an issue of readiness for them. Um, Charleston has issues. Um, they've had I think three successive falls. They've had storms and flooding and i talked to people there who are um you know at sort of at wit's end with dealing with the flooding in their in their kitchens and their in their living rooms um they've got you know there's coastal erosion along some of the barrier islands in north carolina and in georgia florida sits on porous limestone so they're not seeing as much sea level rise but the problem in florida is the water can kind of come up through that limestone mm-hmm. um, and then you've got um, and you've got New Orleans, of course, and they've seen that heavy red, heavy rain that we've talked about recently. And they're also 
Um, they're also below sea level, so they have to have this levee system and they have to have pumping systems. And then there's Houston and Galveston, and they're, they've got these refineries to also to protect. Mm. Um, so okay, they've so all got different issues. We have just a minute left, so I'm interested. And, in, you know, you, you write in your book about Norfolk has put about $100 billion into infrastructure improvements, Charleston, $500 million into digging some tunnels, massive tunnels, to try mm. and control some of the runoff. But we're talking about... Uh, combating the effects of storms. We're talking about, let's say, mitigation, but not about prevention. Is it too much, uh, although Kim mentioned that some cities have renewable energy plans, is it too much to ask even for these small municipalities and sometimes big cities that are seeing the effects of climate change to focus on prevention? Kim, what do you think? Well, I think it's going to be about states like Georgia and the leadership in Georgia recognizing the acute vulnerability of our state's economy to ongoing climate threats and to band together with their partners at the federal level to uh, make comprehensive uh, climate and energy policy reality. And we do need a price on carbon. And then all of this will accelerate much more smoothly and reflect the true costs of continued carbon emissions. So this is a kind of a example of how uh, local policies can start to to trickle up and raise awareness at the federal level. All right, Kim Cobb, who biked here safely <laughs> and sweatily <laughs> today. She's a climate scientist and director of the Global Change Program at Georgia Tech. Thank you so much. Thank you. Rick Van Noy, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Rick is author of a new book called Sudden Spring, Stories of Adaptation in a Climate Change South. He's going to be at the Decatur Book Festival on Saturday, August 31st. That's our show for today. We're going to leave you with a song by Parquet Courts called Before the Water Gets Too High. This is On Second Thought. We will be back again tomorrow. Thanks so much for listening.